Hey, hey, what's up? It's Gustavo Ariano, and you're listening to The Times, essential news from the LA Times. Today, episode four of A Line in the Land from our friends at Texas Public Radio and the Houston Chronicle. It's a podcast that explores the human story behind the Haitian immigration journey to the United States. It's Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. When an earthquake devastated Haiti in 2010, the international community pledged billions of dollars to help. But a lot of that aid never went to rebuilding Haiti or even to the Haitian people. Haiti's instability, though, goes back even farther. In fact, its fundamental problems are deeply rooted in outside political forces dating back to the country's origin story as the world's first black republic. That's the history you'll hear in episode four of Line in the Land. By the way, if you haven't listened to the first three episodes, you should go back and do that first. And we'll be back with episode five next Tuesday. We're airing an episode from A Line in the Land every Tuesday through the end of August. Hey, there are episodes of Line in the Land in English and in Spanish. This is the English version. Para escuchar en español, vuelve al feed para encontrar la versión con el título La Línea. In Del Rio, Texas, racial justice activists Farrell Clark and Josie Garcia from San Antonio sit in the front seats of a tan SUV. They are towing a trailer full of clothes, shoes, and toys. About how many trips do you think you guys have made out here? Cheese and rice. Um, ten. Yeah, minimum. Minimal ten. We need to do better with our tracking. Yeah, you need to know they, that everything kind of runs together. <laughs> it runs together because we just move. It's November 2021, two months after the chaos under the bridge. Yeah, we came quite a bit, quite a bit of times. And 12. That's why, Ramal, that's why your husband <laughs> is mad. Because <laughs> I'd save the world if I could. Ever since they saw the Black migrants in need at the Texas-Mexico border, they've been fundraising in San Antonio and bringing back donations multiple times a week. We literally spend like 14 hours a day, six days, six to seven days a week um, working, whether like literally we go from event to event to event, trying to talk to people, drum up support. She's No, she literally has. She has taken clothes off her back and I'm like, you know, especially, I think, as being a veteran who served, you know, I mean, we we had a vow, we made an oath to protect our country. This is the land of freedom. You know, send me your, your weekend masses yearning to be free, and I want to live up to that. It feels alone sometimes. Oh, we need dollars. I think we got pretty good, though. They paid across the international bridge and drive into Mexico. Yes. They look to the side at an empty dirt and grass lot underneath the bridge. This is the area that was packed with That was where they were crossing on this side, or was it this side? This side. The sea of distressed families under the Del Rio Bridge is gone. But just because the camp has been cleared doesn't mean any of the problems at the root of this crisis have been resolved. We quickly pull up to short cemented walls. Estamos afuera. It's an abandoned dance hall where a shelter has been set up for Haitian migrants who were under the bridge. People approach the trailer. It's a little chaotic. Big tip, you have to get everybody in line as much as possible. Momentito, por favor. Thank you. 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 Th
Some people pushed their way to the front to grab donated clothes and toys. At this point, they've been months without a home. Tensions are high. Many believed they would be in the U.S. by now, and their journey would be over. And aside from nonprofits, some Mexican officials and volunteers like Clark and Garcia, the Haitians at the border have been more or less forgotten. The crisis that spawned a tent city of thousands beneath the Del Rio Bridge has slipped from the headlines, like so many stories before. Hurricane Katrina. The scene is nothing short of apocalyptic. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. The waves of refugees crowding onto Greek islands. In the past five years, more than 1,150,000 asylum seekers have landed on their beaches. A disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. Taliban fighters marching through the streets, dressed in all white, the color of the Taliban's flag, and a symbol they're ready for martyrdom. But as the world moves on, the people at the center of these stories, they're the ones who have to continue to worry about their next meal, where they're going to live, how to protect their children. This is where aid from governments, nonprofits, and individuals like Garcia and Clark plays an absolutely critical role in determining whether recovery on any level is even possible. It's all about the follow-through. That's why in this episode, we're going to back up and revisit a crisis that turned Haiti upside down and how the U.S. responded. And we'll dive deeper into the U.S. government's actions in Haiti and how the U.S. involvement in the country, from aid to occupation, has been a double-edged sword for Haiti. To better understand U.S.-Haitian relations, we spoke with Haitians across the Americas, in person, through WhatsApp, and video calls. The people who can best tell this story. Who can help us understand why so many people took this perilous journey, what they faced along the way. And how U.S. foreign policy has played such a pivotal and, in some cases, devastating role in Haiti's history. I'm Joy Palacios with Texas Public Radio. And I'm Elizabeth Troval with the Houston Chronicle. This is Episode 4 of Line in the Land. When the earthquake struck Haiti on January 12, 2010... It was a global news story. Offers of international aid are being made tonight for Haiti. Around the world, people saw the reports of crushed bodies and the toppled presidential palace. The quake struck just before dusk. Its power shook the densely populated capital, Port-au-Prince, to its core. The aid started to pour in. Billions of dollars of aid. The people of Haiti will have the full support of the United States in the urgent effort to rescue those trapped beneath the rubble and to deliver the humanitarian relief, the food, water, and medicine that Haitians will need in the coming days. Biden, who was vice president at the time, is standing right behind Obama at this news conference, by the way. Even Hollywood chipped in with the help of Haitian-American musician Wyclef Jean with this. We are the world. We are the children. A reboot to help encourage donations for Haiti. Janet Jackson, Celine Dion, a teenage Justin Bieber, 
all of the biggest stars made an appearance to remake this banger for international aid for Haiti. Everyday Americans and people from around the world gave to Haiti in the wake of the disaster. So what exactly happened to those billions of dollars? Very little of the money was ever actually delivered in Haiti. Journalist Jonathan Katz was in Haiti working for the Associated Press when the earthquake hit. The money that was spent was for the most part spent within the donor countries. So in the United States, it essentially is like, you know, the the State Department paying the Defense Department. Katz wrote an entire book about this called The Big Truck That Went By, How the World Came to Save Haiti and Left Behind a Disaster. He says very little of the billions promised ended up in the hands of actual Haitians. It went to U.S. agencies and contractors for things that, you know, looked good on television. Um, So, you know, to to use one example, um, a lot of money and a lot of effort was put into search and rescue, um, which sounds from the outside like a really important thing to focus on uh, in in the aftermath of an earthquake. But the reality is that because the, the... uh, the rescue teams were coming from outside the country and couldn't get there, you know, for, in some cases, for a couple of days. He says by the time rescue teams got there, everybody who could have been saved had already been pulled out of the rubble by their friends, family, and neighbors. Um, and ultimately, there weren't that many people to save. So the money never got to Haiti. So therefore, there were never a reconstruction. Geraldine Joseph is with the Haitian Bridge Alliance. The National Palace, like the White House in Haiti, never got re- rebuilt till today. All the buildings that were destroyed, none of them have been reconstructed. None of them. Joseph and others argue that if Haiti would have actually been rebuilt, it could have prevented the massive waves of migration that followed. I want to go back and I want to be there. I want to be able to enjoy my coconut water in the morning. I want to be able to eat my fish and be able to just enjoy life because that is what you can have. So people don't want to leave Haiti, but people are being forced to leave because due to insecurity, their lives really are at risk every single day. The U.S. is the richest country in the hemisphere. Haiti is the poorest. The two countries have had a long-standing relationship. And to better understand why recent aid endeavors have not managed to make an impact, we need to go back a couple of centuries. It's 1804. Black, formerly enslaved Haitians have defeated their colonizer, France. It's a really big deal. It is the only successful large-scale slave rebellion in the Americas, the only one that resulted in the creation of a new nation of formerly enslaved people. It was like if the U.S. Revolutionary War and the Civil War happened at the same time. It meant freedom from colonizers and slavery was abolished. Haiti did that first, before any other country. It was a disruption to the world order at the time. Napoleon Bonaparte himself said this, The prospect of a Black Republic is equally disturbing to the Spanish, 
the English, and the Americans. But Haiti, the richest colony in the West Indies, now stood on its own. Two important things happened at this point. Here's Sadrak Sias, Haitian author and advocate. The United States and many other countries, but particularly the United States, did not want to recognize Haiti independence. That's right. The U.S. didn't formally recognize Haiti for 60 years until the U.S. Civil War. It's probably no surprise as to why. Geraldine Joseph again. Having a newly formed Black nation of formerly enslaved people present a danger to the United States and the fear of enslaved people in the United States. The U.S. didn't want its own enslaved people to get any ideas. Because in the United States, we were still having slaves. And so if we were to say, yay, go, Haiti, oh, good, good for you, they wouldn't do that because they were still having, they were still, you know, having slavery. Another important thing happened at this time. In return for recognizing their independence, France forced Haiti, the winner of the war, to pay an indemnity. They handed Haiti a bill for what would be today billions of dollars. The French demanded 10 times what the U.S. paid for the Louisiana Territory, an impossible debt, according to historian Marlena Doubt. But the Haitians agreed to avoid more bloodshed. So let's line this up. First, the French took over Haiti and decimated the native Taino population. Then they enslave Africans and bring them to Haiti to work the land. Then when the enslaved population rebels, the French want their money back? Yeah. And author Jonathan Katz says this debt business really screwed over Haiti. It took basically the entire 19th century to repay it. But in order to do that, in order to sort of, you know, shore up their balance of payments in, in their budget, they had to take out other loans, including from U.S. banks. And in order to assure the repayment of the loan to Citibank in, in particular, the U.S. Marines came ashore in Port-au-Prince in December of 1914 and stole half of the gold reserves out of Haiti's central bank. Um, they did this at the behest of U.S. banks, especially Citibank. The story gets even more complicated. This set Haitian politics into a tailspin and resulted in the assassination of a Haitian president, a pro-U.S. Haitian president in 1915, which, by the way, was the last assassination of a Haitian president until Jovenel Moise was assassinated in the summer of 2021. Everything old is new again. And the U.S. Marines invaded in 1915 and occupied brutally Haiti for 19 years. This is all to say, when we talk about instability in Haiti, there are many forces at work. So just really to, to really put all of that into context and looking into why people are fleeing, why people are leaving. Geraldine Joseph. It is man-made disasters, natural disasters, political turmoils, uh, foreign policies that continues to dismantle uh, the very system in Haiti and really making sure that Haiti as a Black country is used as, a, as an example that Black people cannot govern themselves. We'll be right back.
We're back at the Acuna Migrant Shelter in Mexico. Reporter Stephanie Acorpi asks Dashka about her childhood in Haiti. She responds in French, which warrants some stares from other migrants. She says her dad was a painter. He sold his artwork to tourists. They had opportunities back then. Dashka remembers doing well in history class, where she learned about slavery, the French, freedom. When her dad was around, it was her and her sister and brother. She was the youngest, and they lived in a four-room home with a washing machine. She took music lessons while in primary school and learned to play the violin. That was when her dad was still alive. She says she lived a happy childhood. When her father died, things changed. They couldn't afford the same luxuries as before. They depended on her mom's low salary as a teacher to make ends meet. Now, both of her parents are dead. At the Acuna Migrant Shelter, Mexican officials from the refugee agency Comar are helping dozens of Haitians apply for asylum in Mexico. Haitians are sitting around, filling out long forms by hand. They decided to stay and not cross into Texas for fear the U.S. government would send them back to Haiti like they did to thousands of others. Dashka is one of the last to fill out her application and hand it in. I ask her if she's excited. <laughs> yes, but my hand hurts from writing so much, she says. Some people are gathering to get pizza. Children are jumping rope, and others are preparing for bed. Then, out of nowhere, Dashka says... She needs to tell me a story. She needs to explain why she left her country, why she left after her mother died. It's because my mom died of HIV, she says. It's still taboo in her country to have HIV. There's discrimination, she explains. Nobody will talk to you. For Dashka, it's a constant fear. Anytime she can, she gets tested for HIV. She's not just afraid of dying, but after seeing the way her mom was treated, she's afraid of what it would mean to live with it too.
Haitians have dealt with a lot of unfair stigma and hatred related to the spread of AIDS in the Americas. Even the CDC played a role in perpetuating anti-Haitian discrimination relating to the disease. Right. The CDC identified Haitians in the 1980s as a group with high risk factors for HIV. The FDA barred Haitians in the U.S. from giving blood. It provoked protests in New York City. Don't blame the Haitians for what they do not do. One healthcare worker who works in Brooklyn says the evidence linking Haitians and Africans to AIDS here in the U.S. does not hold up. In your dealings in the hospitals, you don't see any large percentage of, of Haitians or Africans with AIDS. No, because you see AIDS in all colors, all nations, all nationality, white, black, whatever country you come from. And then there's the 1991 military coup in Haiti. Thousands of Haitian migrants escaped on boats. Many were intercepted by the U.S. and brought to Guantanamo Bay. A lot of them were literally packed like sardines in Guantanamo Bay in subhuman conditions. Haitians with HIV were segregated from the rest of the migrant detainees and weren't released until a federal judge ordered it in 1993. That was one of the most cruel policies of the United States towards refugees and towards Haitian migrants coming to the United States asking for for asylum. And again, using the AIDS as the reason why those people were needed to be controlled, needed to be caged. Remember Title 42, the policy that has basically shut down the U.S. asylum system for more than two years because of concerns about the spread of COVID? The jailing of Haitians in Guantanamo is another example of where health policy is weaponized as part of an effort to keep people out of the country. Back at the Acuna border shelter, Domingue Paul and Ketli Fanfan are making the most of a bad situation. On a sunny November day, they are lined up in jackets with suitcases and their two kids, ready to start their new lives in Mexico. They are headed to Torreon, a day's bus ride south of Acuna. That's where local business owners have agreed to help Haitians find jobs there in order to close down this Haitian migrant shelter. Fan Fan smiles in anticipation of finally leaving. Fan Fan thanks the Mexican people and says this town, Acuna, has a heart of gold. They would be dead without the generosity. She's ready to move on with her life, especially for her kids, both Chilean citizens. She hopes they can forgive her and understand it was all done for them. She says, God willing, in Mexico, they'll find what they're looking for. What happens with this family, with Dashka and Jean-Jean Baptiste, who we met in the jungle, that's in our next episode. Next time on Line in the Land.
And that's it for this episode of The Times, essential news from the LA Times. Line in the Land is reported and produced by Elizabeth Trovel, Sofia Sanchez, Stefania Corpi, and Joey Palacios. Their editor is Elisa Barba. Cultural Competency Assessment by Miriam Chassi. Sound design and music by Jacob Brasati. Audio mixing by Bennett Smith. And special thanks to Dan Katz, Lily Thomas, and Maria Reed. Line in the Land is a production of Texas Public Radio in collaboration with the Houston Chronicle. You can find and follow the show and binge all the episodes in season one on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Times is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Basalian, David Toledo, and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistant is Madeline Amato. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmina Aguilera, Shani Hilton, and Hiba Urbani. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias.